Hello everyone, Anne Cross here in the urban yurt in East London. Excited to be here with my regular podcast, Conversations of Spirituality in the Urban Yurt, where I invite guests into the yurt to have conversations with me on matters of the heart. We hear so much these days about our society becoming less religious and the statistics certainly prove that with more and more people actually self-defining as the religious nons. But my experience is actually that people are no less spiritual. In fact, they're taking responsibility for their own spirituality, for their own sense of that which is beyond the physical realm. Um, sometimes remaining within a faith organisation, often not, but finding myriad ways to explore, to celebrate, to define their own spiritual path. And today I am so delighted to welcome into the yurt Indira Nanda, who is a local resident here in Newham and a yoga teacher. She's just been telling me about the walking yoga that she's been doing around the park this morning. So welcome, Indira. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. So good, so yeah. good. And we've just had a short meditation together, which is um, uh, really special and heart-opening. So we're ready for this conversation. Yes. So beautiful, thank you. Um, as, a, as a kind of way of introducing yourself to us maybe you tell us a little bit about who you are maybe a little bit about your any faith background where kind of where do you come from where um so i grew up in kenya i was born in kenya Mm. and then we came to uk Mm -hmm. so i always kind of joke that i'm a true product of the colonialism basically you know parents born in india they emigrated during the colonies Mm. during the empire to Africa and then we all grew up there and then we came to UK because we had British passports so it was easier Um, but that's kind of the journey um, from the Indian continent to Indian continent to to UK um, and to the European continent basically Um, but throughout all of that bringing up um, my parents were very firmly grounded very rooted, kind of. Um, and we grew up in a Hindu background and with Hinduism all around us. But I kind of, it was much later in life, I realized that the, the Hinduism that we practiced at home, and maybe with my parents' friends as well and other family members um, and relatives was quite liberal in inverted commas in that we had so much more freedom than um, I've come to realize now you know all these religions have they're quite I find now they're more restrictive than what we grew up with Um, so that's kind of my background and I've grown up with that and there's never been this like a tug of war do I believe in it or don't I believe in it I grew up with it I was very close to it for a while, then I drifted away. I was never a a non-believer, but I kind of just drifted away. And then I came back to it, I kind of dip in and out. And it's always been a a space that's given me 
the answers for whatever I need. Mm -hmm. So you grew up in Kenya yeah. as a child um, and in a community that was that practiced Hinduism. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what, what did that look like? What did that Hinduism look like? That was going to the local temple? Yeah, that Hinduism uh, looked like not going to the temple. No, okay. <laughs> My mother went. Right. And we were, it was suggested to us to go whenever we felt like it. But my mother was a regular visitor. Every once a week she'd go and do a business. Um, and so did my father. Uh, but my father kind of never ever saw him actually from remembering ever going to a temple. It was always my mom and me or us lot with my mom. Uh, but we had a lovely shrine at home which my mom and dad created in a separate room, little shrine room, and that was our da daily temple to go to. And they did their puja there every day. You know, so there was a routine there. You get up, have your shower, you go to the shrine room, you do whatever you, even if it's just bowing down, you do that, and then you have your breakfast. And you use the term puja. Can you? Would you just say a little bit about that for yeah. people who might not know what puja, puja is? Puja is a form of worship. So it could be a worship by just bowing your head down mm -hmm. to the shrine, or um, carrying out an elaborate ceremony. Yeah, like that they do in temples with mala. Um, mala means the rosary beads that you practice or uh, and chant with sacred chants. Or just sitting there meditating, or you know, um, lighting up the diyas, the candles every morning, offering the food and so on. So it may takes many forms, and people have their own little ways of practicing those. So that was our way of puja. Mm -hmm. My parents did the elaborate one. You know, they got up very early in the morning at four in the morning, and they were there till six. You know, they did their stuff, and we just dipped in and out. Um, so that was kind of the environment we grew up in. And then, of course, the festivals. When the festivals came around, then we went to the temple and, you know, kind of celebrated them as a big community. Um, but for us, kind of, for us, being Hindu was, it's my interpretation of it as well from what I've learned, it was being kind and human mm -hmm. more than going to a temple mm -hmm. and, you know, worshipping. Um, because I've, I've kind of noticed that reflecting back on that growing up and that kind of time that that's how my parents lived their life and that's what they kind of taught us without teaching us you know kind of there was an example of everything was an example and that's how we've kind of been yeah around and that's how and that's why when I when I kind of find now that anyone says to me you have to go to temple three times a day or or go to temple once a week and you must do this, that, and the other, I kind of find there's a resistance. <laughs> a resistance in you? Yeah, a resistance in me saying, oh, I don't think so. And then I kind of sit back and think, well, maybe, you know, that's their way of finding themselves. And that's fine as well. Yeah. But we still kind of have this fluidity around it. Mm -hmm. And my mother was the strongest one in that, that, you know, she kind of made sure we were going in the right path all the time. <laughs> and stuff because she had eight to deal with so <laughs> eight children you had seven brothers and sisters yeah wow. so we, you know um she she did a good job and she was herself was very spiritual and religious i would say as well but more spiritual 
and she used to go to a women's group in Kenya. It was a huge women's group um, run by a very dynamic uh, brother and sister um, and they were philanthropists basically so what they did was all the money they collected from the weekly satsang which was meeting of all the women they sing chant and everything and celebrate um, that would help the poor people basically so every they would buy food grains and stuff so every Sunday if you didn't have enough food in your house you'd go there and they'd give it to you mm-hmm. so it was kind of and she belonged to that group so we were very much integrally kind of involved in all of this, in kind of mm-hmm. helping people. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, kind of religions, religion was one part of mm-hmm. it. More of it was just being kind and helping everybody mm-hmm. who came around. You just made a distinction about uh, between spiritual and religious, which I'm I'm fascinated to hear you say a little bit more about that. How would you make? What distinction would you make between, I mean... Okay. Um, for me, um, is, this is my personal understanding, mm-hmm. is to me religion should evolve or needs to evolve because people evolve, times change, and it needs to evolve with that. You can't... I think, well, I believe that if you hold on to an idea and work with that idea all the time. It doesn't evolve, it doesn't allow you to go with the current times. It kind of then cages you. So you become almost like um, caged into this system where you think if you don't do something that's been taught to you 50 years ago, something will fall apart. It's kind of conditioning of your brain. And for me, that's not true. Everything needs to adapt. And that for me is a great kind of, that's a distinction I make. So for me, it's not like you must do this every single day. You do what you can do, what feels right for you. And that should be your religion, if you like. And and that will then feed your spirit and your soul because then you will be listening to your spirit and your soul. Mm-hmm. rather than following something which may not work after even five days, for example, mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, really beautifully put, yeah. thank you. So you came over to the UK um, as a young adult? I was 11. Oh, j- oh quite young quite still. J- yeah. So you came over with the whole family? No, we came in groups, so mm. because we were a big family. We, my, my two brothers came before us, mm. settled in East London. Then me, my mother, my father, my mother, father, and one brother came. The two youngest siblings, basically, me and my youngest mm. brother. And then the rest followed in mm. stages. Um, and then now everybody's spread around in East London and around UK, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, and there was a big difference with practicing Hinduism. Well, we see. So this is this is why I kind of never have felt that I've moved away from it because when we came to UK, uh, we lived in Forest Gate, and there were no temples or anything. There was just the Gurudwara on uh, Neville Road, and that was the only holy place that we could go to. And my mom, being my mom, you know, she made sure that after after arriving one 
day, the second day, she just went exploring the area. Like we were shown the important bits by my brother saying, you know, it's where you need to get buses and trains and everything. The rest, they, my parents went and discovered themselves. And she came home after first day and she said, I found a Gurudwara, she said. So if you need to go, that's where you go, she said. So it's okay. And it was a very small place on Neville Road. Now it's big. They've rebuilt it. And for many years, we actually just went there once a week. Like if we felt like we needed that connection to spirituality or religion, mm-hmm. we would just go there and donate something and sit there for a while and leave. Um, then a couple of years later, they built, I believe it's the first Hindu temple in East London, the one on Cedars Road in Stratford. Um, it's, it used to be an old church. So I remember being, hearing about it and then us, we all went there. And it was just a very cold, very dark church hole. No lighting, nothing, just the brick walls. The pews had been taken away, the benches had been taken away. So there was no furniture at all. And they had this kind of sisal mats on the floor for people to walk into. Um, and they had a little shrine of Radha Krishna, tiny little thing like that. And there was a little bit of um, candle there, and that was it. Um, and I remember my mom saying, you know, to us, my parents saying, well, well, at least it's this temple you can go to, you know, it's still spiritual. It was a church, so it already had spirit there. It's just now another faith. That's all it is. So you can just still go there. And I remember us going there. Now it's, you know, very beautiful, elaborate temple. So for us, that was kind of the religion, religious landscape mm. at that time. Um, and it was fine because we still had our shrine at home. And it never kind of, in a way, I never kind of felt I was missing anything. Mm. And I, I think part of that is up to your parents to make that space for you. And they always made that space for us, even though we were in rented accommodation, really cramped mm. and stuff. But they made that space. So we never felt like, well, at least I didn't feel like I needed to go to another mm organized mm. event to feel that I'm part of the community mm. at all. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was very different. Um, so that was the kind of the space we were within and working around and going to school. And yes, it was very different. Um, but I'm very adaptable. My mind is very fluid, so I adapt quickly to stuff. Um, so I just kind of adapted my way around and found my way. And it was it's fine, yeah. Yeah. So how would you describe your your adult understanding of your own faith and spirituality? How, where do you sit with all that now? Um, I'm still I'm still discovering it, I would say. I haven't I don't think I've discovered much. I only touched the surface of it even as an adult now. Um, But I I feel comfortable where I am with it. I don't feel uncomfortable. I don't feel as if I should be hesitant in saying that it's Hinduism I follow. Um, And I wouldn't either say that it's perfect it isn't perfect. There are lots of things that are imperfect in how it's practiced, how it's interpreted, 
But if you begin to go back to the basics and reading the Vedas and how they're written many thousands of years ago, everything that's in there is relevant to current times. So for me, it's about how you interpret it, how you look at everything that's written, how that fits in with your environment and how you respond to it. Mm. Um, and, and so in a way for me I'm still discovering it but I always think that if there's any judgment coming along or any prejudice coming along and it's to do with any faith I just step back and I think well you know what's going on here am I dealing with uh, an idol or am I dealing with a real human being with emotions and what they're going through and give them space and to me I believe it's important to be a, a human being before you, you think about religion, culture, color, type, shape, anything. Because if you can see that in any person you meet or anyone you meet, then I think you have, that's your, that should be your true faith actually. To me, that's how I believe it. And, and that's what I've kind of discovered more and more over the past few years. Before. I never questioned religion because I was there, it was working, it was perfect, there was nothing for me to question it or challenge it. But with everything that's going on around us, uh, I kind of begin to question this whole thing about religion, that um, it, how it can really become very narrow in how you follow. When you say the whole thing going on around us? I just mean the whole thing about hate, um, you know, divisions amongst people on the basis of race, colour, religion, you know, like you'll say some people, I won't sit next to that person, I won't do this, I won't touch that, I won't go there, or I don't believe in that. All of that, if people just opened up a little bit more you know, and just looked at each human, each person as a human being, rather than the conditioning that they have, then I think it would make you as a, you, me as a better person, as a human being, but also your relationship with everyone would be much more fluid and easier and pleasant. Because there's nothing, excuse me, I just find that it, when people are being unkind, I just think, on what basis are you being unkind? You know, there's no reason for it, really. But then they will find a reason for it. And it usually are those kind of, you know, either judgmental, ignorance, or because of their conditioning or wherever they are in their life or what they've been brought up with or where mm. they're going. Mm. Or none, yeah, for I mean, example. certainly with Brexit and everything, we've seen yeah. a real rise yeah. in kind of hate crimes mm. and um, yeah racism anti anti people of other faiths yeah um, and I think that's just so unnecessary it's just insecurity and unnecessary really um, I just I just quickly mentioned this I read an article yesterday somebody tweeted in uh, America in Tallahassee um, there was a shooting in a yoga studio so there's a, there's a very long article about this and about the tradition of yoga and everything, how it came into West and everything. 
and at the bottom or not at the bottom in, in between in each paragraph there was a sentence saying the Americans think that yoga is a pagan faith <laughs> it's a faith right yoga is not our thing yoga is not good because it shows women in their leotards you know expressing themselves and um, expressing their body you know we don't want to see their shape and I was thinking where is this coming from what's going on in here but it's a current idea article and, I, and you know it's quite a recent article and that made me think that are we what's going on with people's mind are we just really digressing because yeah. and what was the publication where this was printed I'll find it for you yeah, it's, we'll it's a Twitter one but it's fascinating right. I read it yesterday and I thought why is this happening when we've got access to information and facts basically you know out there you just have to look for it mm. and be a human being and, and why is why is this perception still continuing and that's only about yoga but I'm sure it's about other stuff as well mm. around us mm -hmm. fear of a fear of yoga so tell me about yoga you're a yoga teacher so yoga I um, I practice Kundalini yoga which is all about the chakras um, it's quite powerful it's also a form of yoga that was never taught to the general public. So the general public were taught Hatha yoga, whereby you hold the postures for a couple of seconds and then you move on to the next posture. And it was all about breathing and holding the postures. Whereas Kundalini yoga is about very fast dynamic movement to raise the energy of Kundalini and then bring it down again and stuff. Um, so that's what I practice and so Kundalini means the Kundalini is a serpent or so-called serpent sitting at the base of your spine mm -hmm. and so it's physically it's connected to your central nervous system the parasympathetic nerves and the sympathetic nerves right so if you think look if you look at your spine and then there are three ropes, ropes there the central nervous system um, at the base of the ner central nervous system is your Kundalini sitting there and when you practice this posture, postures, it rises up. So the energy rises up, right? And then it comes down, rises up, comes down. So what you do is you practice each posture for three minutes with your eyes closed quite dynamically. And then you rest for 30 seconds. So it kind of allows the Kundalini to arrive wherever it needs to and then slowly come down. And then you move on to the next posture and so on. Um, and it's a gentle way of raising your kundalini and getting healthier. So I usually say to students, if they come to a yoga class, kundalini yoga class, regularly for six weeks, this is a total beginner, um, it'll take them about six to maybe up to six weeks to raise their kundalini and get comfortable, become comfortable with everything. If they've been practicing other forms of yoga or another physical activity, It'll probably take them four weeks, and they will, they will feel um, much more vibrant. The body begins to kind of connect, and it intuitively begins to heal itself with Kundalini. And it's it's a faster process. Whereas with Hatha Yoga, you can still raise your Kundalini, but it can take up to seven years, depending on how often you practice. So that's the only two difference. But it was thought by the yogis that Kundalini would be too much 
for the general public because they have to have the, live their daily life. Uh, whereas Hatha yoga would be a gentler form of yoga for them to practice, to become healthy and raise their kundalini. So it was never taught to the general public until Yogi Bhajan decided to change all that in America in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> so would you see kundalini yoga as a spiritual practice? It's very much a spiritual practice. Um, so even if you don't want to connect with your spirit and you come to Kundalini Yoga, you will connect with your spirit unknowingly. Um, because of the fact that it's raising your Kundalini, it's making that very, very deep soul connection. So even if you're not into all that, even if you just want to go and just practice your postures and go away with it, it will do whatever it needs to do um, and it works intuitively as well and it will touch your spirit and your soul very kind of deeply at a very deeper state yeah mm. and we can um, we can come and do that kundalini yoga with you in the parks here in Newham you can come and do kundalini yoga in any of the libraries mm -hmm. that I teach um, and I do teach a bit of that in the parks. It's all standing yoga, so I have to be careful. <laughs> but it's still, yeah, I still teach that. Yeah, and you come and taste it and see how it goes mm -hmm. for you. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Gorgeous, lovely. And the kirtan, the, is that also a spiritual practice for you? Or? For me, that is a spiritual practice. So I'll, I'll kind of just slightly go back um, in the story in that kirtan became part of us again with my mother, because my mother used to, uh, in Africa she used to go to that women's group called satsang. When we came to UK, there was nothing that women of her generation, so she was in her uh, 50, early 50 then, and there were a lot of women in that age group who couldn't go to work because they didn't speak fluent English and didn't have any work skills to go out to. Um, and because she'd been part of the group in Kenya, she decided after about a year to start that women's group here. And we started that from our house. So the group, the kind of format would be that you'd meet for three or four hours. Um, you would do some rosary beads, some malas with mantra. And then you would sing kirtan and everybody would be welcome to sing whatever they wanted to sing for an hour or so. They would do a puja they would set up a table with all the pictures of gods and everything, a little shrine with food and everything. So they would do mala, um, bhajan, kirtan and everything, sing along and everything. And they would then end the session. They would read a holy book as well, a one page or, or a chapter, um, put that away. And then they would just at the end, everyone would be offered the um, blessed food. And then they would go home. So we started that from the house we used to live in. Um, and she managed to secure a, a um, day center on Pleasure Road, which is now the, the name will come to me later, um, Subco, it's now Subco, mm. but she managed to secure that space for every Saturday's gathering. So we started with about five people in our house and then once a month at our house, which by, whereby the whole lounge on a Saturday afternoon we packed so we at home couldn't do anything on that Saturday. It was just their space. So she would get together and they would come and, you know, 
have a good time. And it was also a social um, gathering for some of the women because that was their one opportunity to get out and meet other people of their age group. Uh, because during the weekday they'd be at home babysitting or whatever for their grandchildren. Um, and it grew and it grew until they went to Subco. And in Subco every Saturday there would be at least 50 to 100 women who used to go there. And she ran that, and it was all voluntary. You know, there was no kind of payment or anything. But whatever money they collected from the puja and staff, they would have festivals and use it on food to feed everybody. Um, and that's my experience of Kirtan. And we just used to sit there and sing along with everybody. And whoever would lead, lead, and then you would just follow. Um, and I always liked Kirtan, so I still go to Kirtans whenever I get an opportunity. And about a year ago, one of the students said to me, Oh, Indira, I'd love to do a kitten. And I said, Yeah, I'm just trying to look for a place. Let me just think about it. And uh, let's put it out to the universe and see what happens. And then, yeah, um, the year it came along and we were introduced. So that was a great opportunity. Um, and I think it's the right time to start kitten um, because people, again, don't want to go to any organized religious setting or a space. They want something informal. They want somewhere they can just be who they are and sing and be part of it. And that was my idea of a kirtan, basically. And that's my background with kirtan as well. So it kind of comes way from way back then because we've grown up in that environment, singing and chanting and just kind of... So what do you think is the value of singing sacred chants, kirtan? What, what do you think it brings? Um, I, because you don't need to be a professional singer or you don't have to have a great voice, um, if you just chant and connect with the sound current, the sound current connects you with the bigger universe and your spirit. To me, that's Kirtan. And I listen to it every day. I don't listen to anything in my car either. You know, I just have various Kirtans I listen to. And it's just it's so soothing and liberating. It's like dancing, you know. I always say to students, if you want to really shift stuff, start dancing and singing and jumping. That will do whatever it needs to do with you. Um, and to me, singing and dancing, that's what it's about. It's about just connecting with that bigger globe out, out there and everybody else. That's, to me, that's mm. good. Mm. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. And kind of really hard. It kind of, it's also soothing, I, I believe, because people can walk away from a kit and really relaxed. It's as, as good as doing, you know, a meditation for 20 minutes. Mm. But you're using your voice and you're expressing yourself through the sound current, mm -hmm. which have their own frequency as well, you know, depending on how you sing them. But the words, uh, another aspect of Kirtan is in Vedic chantings or even Sanskrit chantings, the alphabet is quite long. I, I can't remember how many letters there are. But each of the letters uses the whole of your mouth and your throat and your heart center. So when you uh, pronounce some words, you have to use the whole of your mouth, the whole of your tongue, the whole of your throat, 
the heart of your chest. So it massages it. So it really kind of brings up that. And your tongue is then connected to your brains. And so you have 72 or 30 meridian points, 72 to 80 meridian points in your mouth. So when your tongue touches those meridian points in the palate of your mouth, that connects with your brain. So you massage your brain. So you're doing a lot of work just by sitting there. A meridian point. They're little, okay, so the meridian points are little energy points. They're all across your body. You have millions of them around your body. The meridian lines, there are millions of it. And they're little like acupressure points. So when you speak, they apply pressure there with your tongue. And that pressure creates the sensation. And the energy then begins to move. So it massages your brain. Wow. <laughs> wow. I think we often forget that we are, so much of us is water, something Ooh. like 70% water. Yeah. We feel so solid. But uh, sound moves so well in water. Yeah, it kind of blends together, doesn't yeah. it? It kind of merges with, yeah. with water. Whenever I chant, I always get this kind of feeling that all my cells are getting mm-hmm. back into realignment. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can feel quite rubbish coming, coming to song. Yeah. And then uh, everything just going, ooh, yeah. I mean, there's so many chants. There are so many healing chants that you can, if you put them on in the background, if somebody's unwell and you put that chant on in the background, you will feel and they will feel their recovery is quicker. And one of them in um, Kundalini Yoga tradition is Satnam. That means truth, now means name. And, excuse me, it's broken down into um, four words, Satanama. If that's chanted in the background or put in the background as sound current, you'll find that everybody will begin to really calm down. Even babies begin to really kind of become really mellow and calm, calm their brains down. And it really soothes the nerves as well. And I know a lot of people have, there's been lots of research in in the US on this mantra. And I have a friend who used to be in the army. We did teacher training together. She's in America. And she said when she went into labor, she told her partner to put on the Satanama in the background in the hospital. And she said the birth was smooth. Wow. There was no issue there. And she's got two lovely girls now. so it's kind of Kirtan mantra, Kirtan stroke mantra has that power to affect your body. And this is where the water mm. element comes in and then the cells begin to mm. regenerate mm. and soothe you and heal you. Mm. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. And I think you also use gongs. I use gong in my yoga, yes. Um, so gongs, there are several gongs, several types of gongs you can use. Mine is symphonic. I've just used a, a, a general one. Uh, gong is um, known as the sound of the universe. So when in a yoga you play gong, when after a practice you get people to lie down, cover themselves up like they're going to sleep, and you begin to play the gong, what gong does, it's the vibration, the sound current it sends through the environment, the, through the room, penetrates the body and the five layers and goes deep within your body and begins 
again to heal you. Again, it's the water element that's doing the work in there as well. And it begins to penetrate your um, body very deeply. And, and people come out of it, students have come out of it, totally like soothed. Um, the last workshop we did on Kirtan Kriya, one of the students who was regular ages ago, she just said to me, texted me, and she said, it's the best sleep I've had in months. And, you know, that's the power of gong and the combination of yoga. Extraordinary, the yeah. power of sound waves. That's right, yeah. Isn't it? And really? it's just pure sound waves. You're yeah. not doing anything but hitting the gong and kind yeah. of just kind of manipulating the sound a little bit. So yeah. it really kind of penetrates through the room and into people's space, into their bodies. Yeah, and it does feel as if you've had a really deep massage. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is, yeah, massage, yeah. Yeah. So you're going to bring some kirtan, or we together are going to bring some kirtan Yes, to we are, we're going to do it together. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to bring a gong. I'm going to bring my gong with me, yes. Mm-hmm. We'll mm-hmm. set it up and, um, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have the gong here and we'll get people to just kind of meditate towards the end of the kirtan because by that time they will have raised their vibration through mm-hmm. kirtan. And then they could just meditate on the sound of Gongan. Mm. That'd be great. If they want to lay down, if there's space, they mm. can lay down and mm. or just sit up and, and yeah, and mm. listen to it. Because mm. that will really begin to soothe and hopefully elevate them somewhere to a space they want to go to. Mm. <laughs> so beautiful. And that's on the 1st of December That's right. at 4 o'clock. That's right. Here yeah. in the yurt. Here in the yurt, yeah. yeah. So if anybody's interested in coming along, they can get hold of you. I will put a, a link to your social yeah. media on the podcast yeah, and just, yeah. or, or to contact me and I, yeah. I can put uh, I can make sure they've got all the details. Yeah, just send us the email and then we'll send you the address so yeah. they can come along. Yeah. Indira, it's been so good to talk to you. you. Thank you so much for coming along and... Yeah, really looking forward to our hour together next week. And let's hope we can make it regular. It's been a pleasure. Um, Yes, that would be really great to make a once a month gathering Mm. and and really get people involved and, yeah, and get a community Mm. spirit going so they feel part of the world. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) East London world. Yeah. Gorgeous. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. What a lovely conversation with Indira this afternoon. Thank you so much, Indira, for coming in. And I love that. Let's get a community of spirit going. What a beautiful idea. So it would be lovely if you could join us on the 1st of December at 4 o'clock in the Urban Yurt for an hour of Kirtan with Indira and lots of other lovely people. I will put a link to uh, our email address on um, on the podcast so that you can connect with us to find out more details about that um, or seek out Indira Nanda on Facebook or myself um, where you'll find more details. Thanks for listening today and if you would like to listen to further conversations in the Urban Yurt, do subscribe to my podcast um, and then you'll be alerted to those up and coming in the future. Thanks for listening today 
and bye for now.